Hi, this is Michelle Zahner from Japanese Breakfast, and you're listening to the LSQ podcast. It's Jenny Elliskew. Welcome to episode 88. Thanks for pressing play. And it was a thrill to get to interview Japanese Breakfast's Michelle Zahner. And I did a little something different with this interview because in Michelle's beautiful best-selling memoir, Crying in H Mart, chapter 5 to be exact, she does an amazing job of narrating her early years getting into music. I actually had her read a little bit of that and we'll play it for you in a bit. Um, but also, I wanted to spend more of our time together delving into her inspirations as a writer and where those first came from. So that's one of the main focuses of the conversation you're about to hear. But first, let's listen to Michelle reading a bit of Chapter 5 from Crying in H Mart, now available in a paperback edition. Who also, Michelle is out on a book tour right now, and you can get info at JapaneseBreakfast.rocks. Nothing was as vital as music the only comfort for my existential dread. I spent my days downloading songs one at a time off LimeWire and getting into heated discussions on AIM about whether the Foo Fighters' acoustic version of Everlong was better than the original. I pocketed my allowance and lunch money to spend exclusively on CDs from House of Records, analyzing lyrics in the liner notes, obsessing over interviews with the champions of Pacific Northwest indie rock, memorizing the rosters of labels like K Records and Kill Rock Stars, and plotting which concerts I'd attend. Hello, Michelle from Japanese Breakfast. Michelle's honor. Welcome to the LSQ podcast. Thank you for having me. Are you home for a moment for a brief reprieve? Uh, yeah, I'm home for like four or five days. And then I go on a long book tour for five, four to five weeks. Did you do a book tour when the hardcover? Because for listeners, this is we get to celebrate the publishing of the paperback edition of Crying in H Mart. And, and did you do a book tour when the hardcover came out a couple of years ago? I did a virtual one. We were still pretty entrenched in, in COVID. And yeah, so I did a virtual book tour, which was so, uh, it was fun, but it was, it was disappointing because I was looking forward to not having to load gear and just like to really relish um, showing up at a place with just like a book and a tote instead of like a trailer's worth of uh, heavy equipment. And I feel like I'm really conditioned to that lifestyle as a musician but then I didn't get to do it. So this is the first time that I'm kind of trekking out on my own and uh, experiencing that. Yeah, so exciting. So this is your first IRL book tour ever. Yes, ever. And is is the, you know, without spoiling anything for people who are going to be coming out to those, is it, are you going to play music and, and also read some from the book? What's the plan? I, you know, I've done a number of like these kinds of events, but never like a full string of a tour celebrating the book or promoting the book. But I imagine that most of these will be like moderated conversations and signings. I think I would like to read. Weirdly, people um, rarely ask me to, even though I feel like that's such a special part of something that I enjoy when I go to when I've gone to readings. So I imagine there'll be a short reading and it'll be mostly like a, a moderated conversation. I try not to do I used to be like vehemently against the idea of like doing music and book stuff in the same kind of event because I never wanted to feel sort of like a like dancing monkey like everything show. That's not to say that I, but now fair. that like, no, an, enough, yeah, like, and I can do this. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I'm more open to it now that I'm like less precious about these two things being separate identities, I guess. But yeah, I, 
for this, I am not doing that. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting um, because when you wrote this book, so what year is that that you started to 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 actually write this? So my my point being, a lot has changed since then. Not just that then there was a that then you're publishing the book and now we're in a pandemic and you know the layers of context that you have now for the experience of Japanese breakfast and the experience of Michelle just doing what feels like the things you want to make. Like I'm sure you think about it a lot differently now than you did at the inception of of like writing this book. Oh, definitely. My friend got like a Facebook reminder of something I posted on my status of like things that I was really excited about in like 2018 that all just seem like really pathetic now. <laughs> like it was like I got interviewed for like a Marvel digital interview, like d digital video and I got to like basically like my sites of like the things that I was contributing to were like much lower. But yeah, I mean, it's really sweet because I think, you know, it's all it's all relative. Like I never anticipated I would I would be doing what I'm doing now. And but the, the, it all kind of came in stages. So it's fun, fun to watch happen and, and look back on things like that. But yeah, what year? Sorry, just to, what year was it that you undertook to to write Crying in H Mart? So I would say probably like the initial seed of the idea came in like late 2015 early 2016 and it was an essay that was that was a little bit more lighthearted, and it, it was um not even what was published in the new yorker it was this piece called love loss and kimchi that was that won glamour magazine's essay of the year and it was focused more on my experience learning how to cook korean food through this korean youtube vlogger it's kind of like a korean julie and julia story and that sort of opened me up to realizing that there was a, a much bigger story there that i i kind of needed to tell for for myself that was very cathartic and therapeutic in this way that music had sort of failed to suddenly be for me and so yeah i think i started working on it in earnest probably like on and off for like from 2016 to 2020. You know, uh, it's interesting because on this show and this series, like the thing specifically that I tend to focus on with people is a section of their lives that is covered in chapter five of Crying in H Mart. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and I don't want to go, you know, just sort of tread over that stuff and, and do spoilers for people who haven't read the book yet. But I do want to dial in on some of the stuff between the lines there, just things that I'm just like want to know more about. Um, and so we're going to get to that. But first, I want to instead explore a little bit of the writer you and that same kind of what was the era of discovery a la sort of chapter five, where you talk about your falling in love with music and becoming obsessed with music and and those sorts of things which we'll get to later but like how did you find and fall in love with kind of the writing impulse within you how old were you when that first sparked um that's a great question I feel like I was a very imaginative kid you know I probably like played sort of like imaginary pretend games like for for longer than I I showed up as a kid and I I had like the impulse to come up with these types of like scenarios at a pretty young age, like probably third, third to like sixth grade. And then I would say I started, I started writing in like school newspaper and, and sort of finding my voice, you know, probably in like sixth grade and, and kept with it through high school and was a part of like a local newspaper column. And, and I had, you know, I, I felt like I had a sense of like pathos in my writing that came kind of naturally. Can I ask for an example of what, what, 
you can remember as a, a naive early thing you wrote, but that's still in retrospect, you're like that had a kind of a good uh, awareness of pathos. Um, you know, like even just like my first, uh, I mean, I was just, I was interested in like these like ordinary compulsions, I guess, like I'm trying to think of like what I wrote for this newspaper that is not completely mortifying. <laughs> I mean, I think I just was enchanted by like, um, even in my early like songwriting days, like of just like, you know, losing a friend to like another friend group or like the you know before you even like develop like romantic relationships of just like what growing up and like the pains of growing up really like the, the those types of stories and yeah i think i had a, a sense of that and then it wasn't probably until college that i started really feeling like i could that that writing was really quite interesting to me and and what i was most passionate about and yeah, weirdly, and I, I've said this before, but I, I felt like the um, my ambition to be a writer was somehow loftier and more impossible than my ambitions to become a musician, because I felt like the DIY infrastructure of doing music on a smaller level felt way more accessible to me just by nature of like being a kid and going to house shows and like going to clubs and knowing bookers and learning how to do all that kind of stuff yourself. That sort of DIY infrastructure maybe exists in the literary world but it's like so much more uncool <laughs> i think and like wow yeah you know? that's so interesting that's so interesting also in the internet era i'm sure they're both kind of different totally so this was like before um i mean i guess now you could like write essays and there are more sort of channels to get those kinds of things published so that is like horrific to me for a whole another set of reasons but at the time I was like the kind of, you know, I, I thought I wanted to be maybe a fiction writer. When I was in creative writing courses in college, I thought I would love to write a collection of short stories or a novel someday. I never thought I would ever write nonfiction. But yeah, like that, that kind of ambition was felt like much more out of reach than playing music in a way, which I think a lot of people have a hard time believing, but is, is how I feel about it. So that was kind of like put aside in it and didn't get picked back up until much later. Did you begin after the book was going to be published and you were you were now officially kind of welcomed into this realm, start to think about other writing projects of that ilk or what you might want to do next fiction or nonfiction? Does it feel now like this is a zone you're going to pursue? Yeah, I think that it gave me a great courage um, that I could um handle navigating large creative projects and that was a, a tremendous gift for sure i am like dreading the moment where i i fall from from that place and and have to experience my first like real failure in that world and i'm sure that it will happen but yeah it gave me great confidence in just like well just by nature of like having completed a book i feel like i could i can take on any like i mean i don't think that there is a greater project that took so much so many years and so much agony and, and so much of my time and mental space to, to complete so I definitely feel like after having done that I I'm really looking forward to to taking the sort of lessons that I I learned from that in into my next project so my my next you know right now I'm like really in the trenches of of finishing this screenplay adaptation which is its own nightmare but um the next book I want to write is is I'm going to begin uh, next year. Um, I'm moving to Korea for one year, um, January 1st to December 31st, and I'm going to study the language. And I think it felt like a really natural follow-up to Crying in H Mart because it, it kind of felt like, you know, 
Crying in H Mart was especially hard because there was so much like rooting around in the past and trying to remember things. That was the most challenging part. And so to have a project in which I'm focused on just what is happening every day and it's sort of writing itself, <laughs> hopefully, about documenting learning the language. Because I sort of felt feel like if I don't turn that into a project, it's something that might never happen to, for me. And it is, has become very uh, special and important for me to explore. So I think that will be my next I know that will be my next um, writing project. And then after that, I, I'm, I truly don't know. I'm intrigued by the year you're going to spend in Korea is going to be a great opportunity to like discover a bunch of Korean music that mm -hmm. you haven't heard before that you've been meaning to listen to. And I fucking forget the name of the like rock and roll band, the Korean rock and roll band that you refer to kind of discovering. Oh, yeah. What so there is a man named Shin Jung Hyung who um, is kind of like the Phil Spector, you know, without the drama, who who like wrote all of these songs for like 60s girl groups and, and kind of Motown-y sort of like Korean bands. And one of those bands was called the Pearl Sisters, and they did a song called Coffee Hanjan that I later learned was like my mom and my aunt's like karaoke go-to, uh, which was sort of a sweet discovery. And then there's also this really beautiful song called Hennim by this woman named Kim Jung Mi that he wrote for her that that is that is so special and, and was like a really big takeaway from from the last time I've I went to Korea. And I talk about that in the book as well. But yeah, I'm sort of in this special place with Korea now where like it's very different from the Korea that my mom introduced me to, you know, in my childhood where you're just sort of like blindly like following along. It's like it has to be like my version of of korea and part of that is like she obviously wouldn't have known of like the sort of artsy districts and the indie bands and like the clubs and bars that you would go to and now that i'm in my 30s i'm kind of discovering those places on my own and it's sort of this new way to interact with the this country that i i was born in yeah have you do you have some early discoveries like a, a, that you're excited to return to that's like yeah what is the where does one go if one is looking for the indie shit? Yeah, so like I, we always play in Hongdae, which is like a Korean, which is like a neighborhood in 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 Korea that's like near the art school, uh, the college, and so all of the venues are there, and there's a lot of like buskers and musicians that hang out in studios. And one of the people I met was um this this woman So Yoon who has this band called Sesonyan. And we did a Korean version of Be Sweet together. And she is like the most incredible guitar player I, I know. Like she is just like, she's so young and she has so much like confidence and bravado. And it's just like, can shred. It's amazing. And, and we became friends. And there's also this amazing woman named Idang. And she sings, she makes like this beautiful, like folky political music. And she always brings on like this huge choir with her and does like a lot of like kind of performance art elements and, and stuff like that. So yeah, th those are a couple of discoveries that I've made. I'm sure I'll make a lot more and I'm really looking forward to it because like getting to interact with Korea, that part of Korea is, is very new and, and different for me and really fun because I, I, I've always felt like those things were kind of mutually exclusive. Yeah, in, in the book you talk about growing up and, and beginning to really delve into music as a way to kind of craft your own world um, that was completely its, you know, its own separate thing. And, and the, you know, the arc that that takes is familiar to some of it's so familiar to me having also being like an indie fan and like having some of the same touch points, even though I'm older than you are. Um, so I wanted to dig in on some of those things a little bit more specifically to start with. Tell me a little bit about House of Records, which you refer mm -hmm. to as I guess that was the record store you'd go to. What, what was that like? 
Um, yeah, it was right by the Circle K across from, I forget, the Full City Coffee, I think. Um, yeah, I remember, I don't even know if I want to bring this up. I, yeah, it, it was like the Cool Kid uh, record store that, you know, all, you know, you were just like kind of in the same way that you're terrified to go into a music store, like a, like a guitar shop. You're also kind of like worried that every record that you bring to the table is going to be like judged really partially it's a small it like looks like it's inside of a house and um yeah it was it was a it was a great place to get records yeah were there how did you who was your did you have a sherpa for like indie music you know who is someone another kid at school or so, something like that because because obviously as as people who've read the book know you were living out kind of in the middle of nowhere and I had no siblings yeah siblings so yeah were there other kids who kind of were like go to house of records it's weird but you'll like it yeah definitely I had a few people like that in my life I mean I think by nature of like growing up in a small pacific northwest town like it has like an indie vibe like we're you know I, I feel like when I moved to the east coast I realized like how different like the regions are like you know all of those people kind of came up more on like emo and hardcore and and we just like didn't have those scenes we were like soft indie people listening to like <laughs> Elliot Smith and built to spill um so I think like just the nature of the region like we have that kind of lore we have like the K records bands like Mount Erie and um like the sort of anti-folk moldy peaches like beat happening and and those kinds of bands that were like I, I would say like that influenced me in a huge way because it kind of was the introduction I had to like weird DIY music that felt like just so accessible. Like you could just go to a coffee shop and like make that that same kind of stuff that was like having such a big effect on you. But yeah, I mean, my, my girlfriends like, uh, you know, Nicole and her mom introduced me like we were listening to a lot of that kind of stuff. We were seeing shows at the Wow Hall and my first boyfriend, Nick Holly Gamer, was like a big influence and played the guitar and really inspired me to like learn how to do that and you know I think that it was mostly just like kids at school in that city like were pretty into into rock and indie music and so I naturally like wanted to it, it became captivated by it what among that stuff would you say that early on you were kind of emulating or you could you can hear oh yeah what were the what were the touchstones that your songs might have echoed back then I think I was like really, I was really, really insecure about my voice um, and, and always have been. I've never felt like a good singer. I just, you know, wanted to write songs and by nature of just like, you know, I just had to be the singer. So I think I was really inspired by bands like, you know, Kimia Dawson and Moldy Peaches and Mount Erie and, you know, Phil Elbrum because they were people who, you know, don't have objectively like beautiful, like Mariah Carey, Whitney Houston diva voices, but they, you know, had this very particular type of storytelling and, you know, their voices were still very appealing and compelling to me. So, yeah, I, I was always like interested in that kind of like wordy, almost like lackadaisical kind of style of singing initially. And then I also realized that I had quite like a high voice. And so I also got really into Joanna Newsom and for a while was like pushing my voice like way beyond its register to like try to kind of emulate her style and eventually kind of settled into something that was a little more of my own. I just saw Joanna Newsom last night here in LA. With Fleetbox, I saw the photos. I'm so envious. It was beautiful. I mean, just like a, what a reminder of what her voice really, like her voice actually sounds perfect in a room just coming out of her mouth. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, you know, <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> 
I mean, would they would if if we if we heard one of the you know earliest demos of of a song that you wrote yourself, would it that would does it have any does it have echoes of what we now hear as Japanese breakfast? Would we recognize it as well? Could that be a demo from way back? Um, or what what do you think are the sort of what do you think are some of the elements that of yeah of your that you still have retained of kind of a recognizable sound? I mean, I think that like lyrically, they they are probably the most consistent. I mean, what fascinated me in my writing at a young age is very similar to what fascinates me still as a writer now. I, early on, I I was doing a lot of like, I mean, when I first started learning the guitar, I learned how to how to finger pick like pretty early on. So I was I was doing a lot of of that, and that sort of makes its way um, into what I'm doing. But I mean, yeah, it, it's I feel like I've always had like kind of like an indie sound and that and that, that's definitely remained pretty consistent did you go through a phase uh where you got like sort of more f- focused on practicing technique and like you know really because you talk in the book about sort of those early record what's what's the name of the music store the guitar center adjacent yeah the lesson factory plays as a starting point but yeah did you ever get into a deep dive of just like technique and shredding and that kind of shit not really i was definitely you know, always interested in in music from like a songwriting perspective. Like I, w- I never was really interested in becoming, I just am so impatient, you know, I, 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 I am, I'm most excited about like bringing an idea to life more so than like becoming really good at a skill to like my, my detriment, you know. It's something as I get older that I, I really want to push myself and, and feel like it's important for my songwriting now to learn more about theory and becoming like a better um, guitar player, a better musician in general, better at producer. But when I was younger, I, it wasn't, my main interest was always just like, I want to write songs. I want to write, like, I'd rather, I'd rather like spend my time writing a hundred songs than like learning how to shred really well for the next year. You know, that was sort of like how I always looked at it. Yeah. And I mean, as you say, when we we're talking earlier about like looking back at notes from 2018 and realizing like how irrelevant some of that um, seemed then it must, it just must evolve so much over time. I mean, I would assume that the, the, the modern sound of Japanese breakfast is, includes so many things that if you had to write a list, if you had to describe, confidently describe back when you started it, I'm assuming it's, it's ended up going places you never would have expected sonically. Oh, definitely. I mean, I think that's the best feeling is, is pushing yourself into a place that you didn't even realize you you had in you. And I think that that's that's what I'm always chasing as, as a musician. Certainly, it's just like I want to surprise other people and I also want to surprise myself. And, and there are certainly different songs over the over the course of the last 10 years that have, have pushed me in that direction. You mentioned in the book um, your admiration for Karen O. And I know that that's something that you've gotten to talk about with her in, in more recent years. And and also, you know, there's another there's another moment where you talk about I forget what the reference was to Lana Del Rey, but something that endeared her to you. I'm just intrigued now. Obviously, you've been you're a very high profile artist at this point, and you've had to deal with a lot of a different kind of scrutiny and fame than you had when you were when you were even just writing the book not that long ago. What do you know now about what it is to be even just say a woman doing those things successfully in music uh, that you didn't know then? I don't know. I mean, I I don't know if I've like it's 
it's changed much for me because I think it's really precious to like hold on to what got you there to begin with. So, you know, I'm really lucky, uh, knock on wood. I haven't really had, um, I'm in like a really sweet spot where I'm, I'm not like chased at the airport. I like, it's still very flattering to get like recognized on the street and it happens every so often. And it's always like very delightful. You know, I, I have friends that, you know, are not, have a certain type of fame that like doesn't allow them to do that. And that sounds really awful. And I'm definitely not um, at that place in my career and, and hopefully will never be. But um, I, I think that um, I just try to think to do things the same way, you know, like it's almost like, you know, what got me here to begin with was not pandering to anyone's expectations or or being so fixated on on people analyzing my decision making. So I, I, I don't think much about it. I don't I, I don't think um, I mean, certainly like I'm less active on Twitter than I used to be, you know, like uh, or I used to like get really drunk and like go on Instagram live and I don't do that anymore. That's probably for the best. You know, I'm not really missing out on anything by by doing that. I'm just, I think I'm just a little more cautious about like flippant opinions I, I might have shared with with the world, though. I still obviously do that occasionally and get in trouble for it. But probably also like less of giving a fuck about what other people think. I mean, it gives you a certain confidence, certainly. Like I think so much of being a creative person is like feeling like you're insane. And then to finally be validated and be like, no, those impulses are are real and like productive and resonate with a lot of people. And special. And yeah, special, special and people like it. Um, it feels really good, you know, and I, I can't lie. It's only given me more confidence, honestly, to to pursue like what's next. and and to trust in my intuition and that is a as a wonderful gift but um yeah i mean i think that the only only real change is like i do like and this is a good thing i i think about what people might expect from me like a bigger picture and i love to do like the sort of opposite of that or surprise people with with something very different and and that's sort of a, a fun way to interact with it i think and I know this summer you're doing a bunch of touring, Japanese breakfast touring. Is is there new any new music in the works? Yeah, I've been working on new music. I definitely think at least for the later shows, like at least in like maybe September, October, I'll definitely start incorporating some new material, which will be fun. Ooh, exciting. Yeah. No one the band doesn't even know that, but <laughs> it's like but what that's like, you know, what what I intend to do, yeah. Well, thank you so much for making time to get together with me to talk. Thank you. This was so lovely. And thank you for the thoughtful questions. All right. Thanks again to Michelle. And if you want to see the upcoming dates on her book tour or upcoming Japanese breakfast dates, because there are shows this summer, get over to JapaneseBreakfast.rocks. And you can find other episodes of the LSQ podcast at JennyLSQ.com. And find me on social platforms at Jenny LSQ. I'll talk to you next time.